Tuesday, June 6th, 1944, known as D-Day. It was the largest amphibious invasion in history of warfare. The Allies used over 5,000 ships and landing crafts to land more than 150,000 troops on the beaches of Normandy. The landing marked the start of a long and costly war in Europe, costly campaign in Europe, a campaign that ultimately defeated the Germans. But on that day, on D-Day, June 6, 1944, the outcome of the war was not certain. The outcome of that battle was not certain. Even Eisenhower, it is said on that day, Eisenhower spent most of the day in his trailer drinking a lot of coffee, waiting for reports to come in. So what could sustain the troops? What could sustain Eisenhower during that time? They had to have faith that the plan that was laid out before them would be fruitful. They had to have faith that good would overcome evil. In our day and age, there is definitely a battle happening. I mean, there are wars, physical wars, happening right now. There's one in Israel, there's one in Ukraine, and I'm sure more will occur. But more than anything, there's a spiritual battle happening before our very eyes. Yes? Yes. There's a spiritual battle. And so the question is, how do you endure? How do you maintain assurance when thinking about end times, when facing the storm clouds of darkness and evil. Although it was uncertain on D-Day, for us the outcome is certain. It is certain because Christ is the victor. Christ In Christ Jesus, there has never been any doubt. There has never been been any uncertainty that he is victorious over all because he is Christ the king he is lord of lords and that he is Christ the king has been foretold in the old testament it has been declared in the gospels and it has been proclaimed in revelation you see in the old testament it was foretold that he would be a sovereign king. In the Gospels, it was declared that he was a sacrificial king. And in Revelation, it is proclaimed that he is the triumphant king. So today, we're going to learn about Christ the King. And my question for you is, do you know your king? Do you know your king? Before we begin, let's pray. Holy Father, gracious and almighty God, we pray this morning that you reveal evermore the glory of your Son, our Savior, Christ the King. Fill us with who He is so that we are strengthened in our faith 
that we can endure all things. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to start with the Old Testament. We're going to start with Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So this is a spectacular vision, right? You've heard of God clouds. You've seen God clouds, right? The clouds are just right. The sun is just streaming so wonderfully through the clouds. This really was a vision of God clouds. See, the glory of the Lord is often represented by clouds. In Exodus chapter 16, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. At the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, to Moses and the Israelites in chapter 19, God said, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud. So here we have the sight of God clouds And then we get a picture of the Son of Man. Now, I know you've heard that phrase many times before, the Son of Man. But is that just a description of this person in the vision that Daniel saw? Or is it more than just a description? In fact, it is much more than a description. It is the, the Son of Man is a messianic title. A title for Christ, the Messiah. And it is a title used by Jesus to express his heavenly origin, his earthly mission, and his glorious future coming. It's not just a description of a man. It is the title of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In fact, It is a title that Jesus preferred to use when referring to himself. In the Gospels, the Son of Man is used 76 times. And out of those 76, all but three come from the very lips of Jesus himself. So he is referring to himself as the Son of Man, a title, a messianic title. And we find this back in Daniel. And you want to know when the end times are actually going to happen? Jesus said, this is when you know the end time is at hand. Matthew 24, starting verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is Christ the King, the Son of Man, who descends upon the clouds. Now in the vision of Daniel... The Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days. This would be God the Father. And we find that God the Father bestows upon Christ Jesus, the Son of Man, certain things. 
Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is what God the Father, the Ancient of Days, gives to Jesus. Now, dominion is not a word we use much anymore. So what does dominion mean? It means a total rule or mastery of all that is in it. And believe it or not, you're more familiar with dominion than you think. It started when you were very small. You had a dominion. It was called your bedroom or your bed, right? Especially if you have siblings who shared a bedroom. That's my bed. I rule that bed. And you had toys that were just yours, too. And even in playing board games, board games have a lot of things about dominion. You play checkers, right? And when you get to the other side, you say, King me, right? Because now you're the king. You know this. Kids know dominions really well. And by the way, it doesn't leave when you grow up. And when you grow up, sometimes it just becomes more sophisticated. I mean, take a look at politics, right? There's a lot of dominion playing going on, isn't there? People start wars because of dominion. Alexander the Great, right? He had a very large dominion, but it paled in comparison. Do you know who actually had the greatest dominion in the world in history? Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan had the greatest dominion by area. You could say maybe the British Empire in there, but really, Genghis Khan, he had it. But the Roman Empire, is it around anymore? No, it's not, is it? The Mongolian Empire? No, not around anymore. Their dominion was never an everlasting dominion. And it was never as far, as wide, as Christ the King, His dominion. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's on a cosmic scale, what we have as our dominion is nothing. It is truly nothing compared to Christ's dominion. We read in Colossians, in Colossians it says this, for by, all, for by Him, that's Jesus, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Is there anything that is outside of Christ's dominion? No, everything is under His dominion. It says this, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And his dominion is everlasting. It will never, ever end. That, yes, amen. That is who he is as a sovereign king. The problem is, most people 
don't want Christ as a sovereign king to have dominion over them. Well, why is that? Because our sinful nature rejects a sovereign king. People will say, oh yes, Jesus is my Savior. Do you obey Him? Well, I don't know about that. Right? They want a Lord, they want a Savior, but they don't want a king. They don't want to have to obey what He commands. So my question is, do you know your king? Do you know Christ, the sovereign king? Now, he is not only Christ, the sovereign king. He is a sacrificial king as well. And here we go to the Gospel of John. And I'm going to read the whole section here. Actually, I'm going to read 16 through, uh, yes, 16 through 22. So he delivered him over to be them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place that is called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. You know, it's pretty interesting in all four, all four gospel accounts has Jesus coming before Pilate and Pilate asking, are you king of the Jews? All four gospel accounts have that. And it's a very important question. And so the question is, is Jesus king of the Jews? Did Pilate just make him king of the Jews or is he? king of the Jews. Well, you have to understand, on Palm Sunday, right? Just several days, not that many days before Jesus came before Pilate, Palm Sunday, he rode in on the donkey, and people were singing praises for him. Hosanna! Hosanna! And and they said, "The, the, the son of David, right? And who was David? David was a king. And they were praising Christ Jesus as a king who would come to rescue them. So they recognized him as kingly descent. But is there more to it? Well, yeah. If you take a look at Luke chapter 1, he will be great and called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Even the wise men, right, who came to search for Jesus, it says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. 
the wise men, they knew Jesus was king because they had read Scripture, right? What was foretold in the Old Testament of Jesus, the king. So listen. Pilate just didn't give Jesus a title and declare that it was thus so. Jesus had that title from long ago, really from the very beginning of eternity. Well, eternity doesn't have a beginning, though, does it? So from eternity to eternity, he's always been the king. Pilate declaring it didn't make it so, but, but it was proclaimed in three different languages. So if you look on screen, there's Aramaic on top, and then there's Latin and Greek. And by the way, I have that in my office. If you want to look at it on the wall and study it, it is there for you to see. But here's the question, right? If Jesus really is the king of the Jews... Why? Why would Jesus the King allow Himself to be crucified? You have to understand how people saw the cross. They saw it as foolishness. Paul in his letter to the Corinthians says that they considered it foolishness and the Greek word for foolishness is the word from which we get moron. Now I know moron isn't a politically good term to use nowadays, right? Because it's so insulting. But that's how they viewed the cross. Moronic foolishness. And they spit upon Him. Spat upon Him. They insulted Him. They said, really, if He's the, if he's the King, let Him save Himself. But it goes back to this question, if he really was the king, why, oh why, did he not save himself? And that's the question that gets to the heart of it for everybody. You have to be able to answer this. Why did Jesus not save himself? If you can't answer that question, you don't know the gospel. Jesus did not save Himself from the cross because He chose to save us from sin. Scripture says that we are dead in our sin, and I've said this many times before. What can a dead person do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. That we are saved by His grace and His grace alone. And so the king would have to die. It was a mission that only he could do. As a matter of fact, there is a song in heaven that is sung about Christ the King, the sacrificial Lamb of God. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is a song. A glorious song sung in heaven. 
So listen, when you look at the cross, you should see the power and wisdom of God. It is the power of God to defeat Satan, to break the bonds of sin. It is the wisdom of God because this is the only way it could have happened where God's righteousness and holiness and the demands of his righteousness are met with grace and mercy and everything is fulfilled by Christ Jesus, the sacrificial king. So my question for you this morning is, do you know your king? Do you know why he died for you? Do you know your king? So we have the We have the sovereign king. We have the sacrificial king. We also have the triumphant king. So this is in Revelation. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And think yeah just i had those reversed okay and his eyes are like flame of fire and on his head many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of god and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure were following him on white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So this is a very different picture, right? Than Christ Jesus on Palm Sunday. Here he is riding in on a white stallion. And for you to really understand the difference between Palm Sunday and what happens in Revelation, we have to dive into this just a little bit. See, on Palm Sunday, he rode in on a donkey, right? Now the king could, if he wanted to, during a time of peace, ride in on a donkey. And so Jesus came in on a donkey because it was a declaration of peace. It was a declaration of peace between God and man. And so he came declaring peace to all. But during a time of war, the king could cried in on a white stallion, signifying the power, the authority of who the king is. And here in Revelation, he comes in on a stallion. In righteousness, he judge and makes war against all who are opposed by God. This is Christ, the triumphant king. And although the name Jesus is not mentioned, I want you to notice how many names is given to the rider. 
He is called faithful and true. And by the way, this is how Jesus referred to himself in one of the letters to uh, the church in Laodicea. He called himself the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. He is faithful. He is steadfast to God the Father, to His Word and His will. And that should be no surprise because He actually is called the Word of God. And on His thigh, on the robe, He is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Remember last week we talked about the song Hallelujah Chorus? For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. We've got another verse right here. King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This is Christ the triumphant. And he also has a name by which no one else knows. How, why so many different names? Well, how do you encompass the fullness of God? Right? How do you encompass the fullness of God? The authority, the sovereign rule that he has over everything. The ability to create out of nothing. Now it says he has many diadems, many crowns. This talks about uh, the symbolism would be his overflowing authority over all things. So here we have a picture of Christ the triumphant king, and he comes as a righteous judge. His fiery eyes show that all he sees, uh, uh, that he sees everything, and that his wrath is against those who oppose him. And by the way, the judgment that he has is not a new judgment. Not at all. In verse 15 from Revelation, it says, He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. This actually comes from Isaiah chapter 63. I'm going to read verses 3 through 6. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the people, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that there was no one to uphold, so my own arm brought me salvation. And my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is the righteous judge who comes to make war. And by the way, this should also sound familiar with another song that you know very well. Battle Hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of His terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Yes, praise God. His truth is marching on. And He will come and defeat all who are opposed to Him. Who have reject Him as the sovereign king who rejected him as the sacrificial king. But he is the triumphant king. 
And how will he be triumphant? He will be triumphant with his own word. It says from his mouth comes a double two-edged sword. That would be one of the Roman swords that was used in battle. It was very deadly. And when you held a sword like that, you held the authority. So simply by his own word, he will take everybody down who does not confess him as sovereign, as sacrificial, as Lord and Savior. Now, in times of battle though, right? When you take a look at World War II and you take a look at the carnage and the wreckage and how many years it took to rebuild and all of those things that some of are still there, you think, is that what's going to be happen when Christ comes? Are we just going to be left with a world in shambles? And the answer is no. Because what's at the very end? What's at the very end is that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21, starting in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling pace of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is what is in the end. So the question this morning is very simple. Do you know your king? Do you know him as a sovereign king? Do you say, yes, Lord, I obey? Do you know him as the sacrificial king, the Lamb of God, who laid down his life for you? And do you know him as the triumphant king in whom there's no uncertainty about the outcome? You see, when you know Jesus is king, you can endure in faith to the end when the storm clouds come your way, when evil seems dark and overpowering, even when we're in the midst of the battle, and we are, we know that it has been already won. It has been won by Christ the King, and to that we say, Amen. 